Let me uh, introduce our next guest by way of putting a, a question to you that he and his colleagues had put to him. Here's the question. I'm applying to in internships right now, and pretty much every employer makes me do a higher view interview. Now, you usually do fine at in-person interviews, but for some reason, talking to a robot makes me choke up and stammer. Does anyone have any advice for improving my higher view skills? Is there a website where I can practice? This question posed on Reddit and picked up by our next guest and his teammates. Our guest is from St. Mary's University in Halifax, where he is an associate professor of industrial and organizational psychology. He is Dr. Nicholas Rulin. Dr. Rulin, Nick, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Good morning, and thanks for having me in the show. Well, it's good to have you on the show. And uh, this whole business of virtual hiring, Dr. Rulin, is is uh, is not particularly new. Uh, the pandemic has necessitated uh, uh, hiring uh, by Zoom, but this whole robotic hiring process, how new is that compared to, say, a Zoom interview that many people might be prepared for? Well, both types have been around for already a few years, but as you've mentioned, the pandemic has made it uh, much more relevant and much more important for many organizations, right? Uh, you cannot really invite people in your office to have an in-person interview sure. anymore. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen a lot of um, direct video interview with Zoom, Skype, or other software, right. but also a lot of those AVIs where basically the applicant is just invited to go on the website and talk to their camera and respond to a number of pre-written questions that they have to record. Uh, and later on, those responses will be either watched by your hiring managers or in some cases will even be automatically rated by a computer algorithm. Ah, so AVI stands for asynchronous video interview. This is the robotic process. It has a name. It's called AVI, right? Exactly, yes. So yeah, it's, it's really different from uh, having to sit in front of your computer and interacting with someone on Zoom, for instance. Sure. Uh, you're just, you know, reading a question, maybe having a few um, seconds or minutes to prepare your answer, and then you click on a, on a button and you record your answer for maybe one or two minutes, and then you move on to the next question. And later on, those uh, recordings will be, as I said, watched by someone who will rate you, but you will have never met with them, with them, or in some cases, it's even an algorithm that will do that for the company. Interesting stuff. Now, Dr. Rulin, your uh, uh, degrees and a lot of your educational background is European. You're from Switzerland. Uh, is this practice, this robot interview or AVI process more dominant in Europe or here in North America, or is it about equally distributed? I would say it's about equally distributed. Uh, some of the big companies are U.S.-based. Uh, we have a few that are Canadian-based as well, but there are also companies in the U.K., in Germany, etc., that do that. Uh, a lot of the research done on that topic comes from Germany, for instance, so it's, it's kind of both ways. So let's talk about this, uh, the AVI, the asynchronous video interview, because even though, and our, our, for example, are today's senior high school graduating classes, Nick, are they made aware of this? Is this part of their curriculum? We used to have resume preparation and, and that sort of thing in senior high school years by way of just somehow wrapping your brain about uh, the real world and the workforce out there. Uh, is there, are there AVI prep 
sections in senior high school classes? Um, I'm, I'm not really sure if there is a lot of that. I know that some universities will provide that to students via their career centers, for instance. Okay. Um, whether that's already done at the high school level, I'm not sure. But I, I think that would definitely be something high school students and soon-to-be graduates have to be prepared for because most of them will have to face some of those AVIs in the near future. It would be less intimidating, I would think, for a young person today, Dr. Rulin, than for someone like me, for example, who, uh, and I've been, I've been in the business and I've been through more than a few interviews, some of them more successful than others, but they've always been face-to-face. And, in, 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 you know, you sort of come to rely on your, your skills, your communication skills to a certain degree uh, in order to just pull this stuff off. But my skills uh, in virtual space I would think I have much less confidence in them than, for example, my son would, who's Mr. You know, he's a computer guy. He grew up with it. It's he's got a device uh, close to him at all times, and so an, an, a virtual interview for him would be eh, no big deal, probably, right? Well, I mean, they will be more familiar with the type of technology required to do an, an AVI effectively. That's for sure, because, of course, they grew up with social media exactly. and, and smartphones and things like that. Yeah. Um, that, that said, I would say that an AVI is still difficult for everyone because, you know, you've been asked a question, you provide your answer. But if you're used to an in-person interview, you can see the person in front of you. Yes. Even in a Zoom interview, you see them, they react, they may smile, they may nod, they may say something that suggests that you've impressed them in some way. Right. But in an AVI, you're just staring at your screen and you may be watching your own uh, recording and right. you watch yourself, but you don't know what um, kind of impression you're making here. So it's much more difficult to try to figure out if we're doing a good job in the interview or not. Uh, than in an, a video um, that is live or in in-person or interviews. How do the questions get presented to you? You agree, for example, Company X is hiring. You find out about it, for example, on Twitter. Somebody gets the word to you. You go to the company's website, and then you can click on a, a, a um, you know, arrange for a virtual interview, an AVI. Uh, so you you uh, you click on that, and uh, yeah, tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock, it'll be your turn. So you come back to the website tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock you sit down you're on camera how do you, how do they pose the questions to you well first of all one of the advantages of those video interviews is that it's not going to be at two o'clock it's going to be at your own time so that's one of the um, big advantages is flexibility they will tell you you may have a few days or maybe a week or two to do it uh-huh. but you can do that whenever you want so okay that's, that's a good thing for a lot of people because if you're already working if you have school if you have other you know family requirements you can kind of schedule your interview the way you want okay uh, but going back to your question in terms of how it's presented there are two main ways where it uh, how it's done the the most um you know important or the, the main way it's done is going to be a, a written question so you're basically just writing uh, reading the question that has been written for you by the organization okay you read the question and you have maybe a few seconds to then start recording in other cases organization may also video record someone asking a question so you will watch a short video clip of a um, hiring manager that is asking the question to you. But I would say in the vast majority of cases, it's going to be just a written question. 
So, uh, and the other thing I would think is probably terribly important to be aware of at all times, once you begin, and it's interesting that you would they would have the flexibility that would allow you to uh, make the arrangements for the interview at, uh, at a time of your choosing, which already makes you a little more comfortable because you picked the time. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a good sort of tension reducer. Uh, so when they pose these questions to you, when you sit down to begin the meeting, I think it's probably terribly important to remember once you hit send or start or whatever you click on, that you're now on TV and every move or motion or expression you present from that moment on will be observed, right? Yeah, that's true. And something that is unique with those uh, video interviews is because you can do it whenever you want, you can do it from home, uh, it's going to be in front of your computer or maybe your smartphone. Some people don't think they have to prepare or present themselves as professionally as they would do in an in-person interview, but it's still very important to do, right? You're not going to be in your pajamas if you're doing this because the hiring manager on the other side that will, will watch it in maybe a week uh, will probably not have a really good impression of you if you're dressed like this. So you no want to dress professionally, you want to be careful in the way you present yourself non-verbally, you want to smile at the camera, you want to look at the camera, you want to be careful in the language or wording that you're using, and so on. Oh, okay. So now, uh, but you know, one of the questions that that uh, sample question that you used in your article, you and your colleagues from the University of Calgary, in which the individual on Reddit was saying, uh, I, you know, I choke up when, I, when I'm talking to a robot. It, it really throws me off my game. Does anyone have any advice? And we'll get some advice from you, Nick, on this. But also the question was, is there a website where I can go practice this stuff? And you've got one, don't you? Yes, well, uh, our research team with some colleague, Josh Portage at the University of Calgary, uh, we have developed our own um, asynchronous video website. Uh, we use it for research. We also have created a page where people can actually go in and prepare for it. They can practice the interview. We have five or six questions on there. We've created different versions for different type of jobs, like a retail job, for instance, some, something in the lab and so on. So you can um, go on the website, uh, you can check uh, some of the, the job opportunities that we've created um, that you can prep for and choose the one that fits your best and then go and practice a short interview like this. Yeah, it's obiilab.com. It's a great website and, and some of the categories. And the idea is to present sample questions. Here's, a, here's the sort of questions you'll get if, for example, you wanted to be uh, in the clothing or retail business or if you wanted to work as a laboratory assistant, here's a sample batch of questions that might be directed at you or, or a brand manager. So you're wisely have selected some, some, some categories that represent various areas of, of the economy, and you can click on those and get some representative questions, and, and uh, you can go through them, and uh, do, you, do you get a chance to record the questions as you answer them, Nick, and do you get uh, a chance to see how you looked responding to them at the end of it all? Yeah, exactly. So you can go through a, a complete video interview like you would do for a real job. You will go through five or six questions that are specifically designed for one of the, the jobs that you've chosen. Uh, and you can experience what it is to actually record yourself uh, in one of those interviews. Interesting stuff. How to land a job when companies have shifted to virtual hiring. It has happened in many cases while we were looking and didn't even notice it because maybe we were lucky enough not to have to be in line for looking for a job. Should that be the case for you next time around, it's very likely to have a virtual component.
We're talking about virtual hiring with our guest, Dr. Nicholas Rulin from St. Mary's University in Halifax, who, along with a couple of colleagues from the University of Calgary, wrote a piece for theconversation.com entitled, How to Land a Job When Companies Have Shifted to Virtual Hiring. Dr. Rulin has told us, for example, that this virtual hiring is not a new thing. It's been going on for quite a number of years. Companies have been gradually making the shift to virtual The COVID crisis, of course, has sealed the deal, Nick, in terms of uh, companies and their hiring practices, whether it's Zoom or algorithm or whatever. The likelihood of a face-to-face interview with anybody in HR these days is pretty remote, isn't it? Well, it is, right? Of course, with uh, COVID, there is a lot of limitation in terms of what companies can do. And of course, in terms of safety, they also want to make sure that they don't risk their employees' life and applicants' life, and therefore it's much easier to do you know, a Zoom interview or one of those asynchronous video interviews. Indeed. Now, you have in your article, you and your colleagues at the University of Calgary, and we'll talk and we'll remind our listeners again about that practice website that you provide as part of the article, and it's really helpful, uh, again, especially if you're unfamiliar with the technology. And another reality that's happening as a result of the pandemic, Nick, is is that a lot of people who thought they were in pretty secure job situations have discovered they aren't. And a lot of people who weren't expecting to be out looking for work are. And so for them, this is a kind of a, a really important uh, I- bit of information in terms of picking up the pace for getting back into the cycle of, of hiring. And you've, you've got some, uh, you and your colleagues included some instructions, two sets though, one for applicants, for people looking for jobs, and another for organizations, people looking to hire people looking for jobs. So we've, we've touched on some of the advice for applicants, but let's review it. And I think the most important, the most important part, Nick, is without question, show up for your virtual interview looking exactly like you would if you were meeting the head of the human resources department. Yeah, that's true. Uh, as I've mentioned earlier, you want to be dressed professionally. You want to make sure that you look your best, even if you're talking to your camera. Um, You also want to make sure you practice a little bit because those video interviews are quite new and difficult for a lot of people. Um, And oftentimes you have limited time to provide your responses. So you may get caught um, by the timing. So you you think you can provide a long discussion of some work experience, but you only have one or two minutes to respond. So it's really good to prepare to practice providing answers in maybe one minute, maybe three minutes um, and do that as much as you can. Um, and, you know, get used to the system. So that's why we have this website when you cover, provide some practice for job applicants and they can get used to the system, used to the format, used to talking in front of the camera. Sure. Now, when they provide you with these questions in a real interview context, do they, for example, you know, why have you chosen this company and this position? If that's question one, do they expect you to respond immediately or do you have a few moments after seeing the question to gather your thoughts and then hit record and hopefully get your response done in the right amount of time? Well, it depends. So that's the the beauty of those video interviews is that they can be designed and set up the way the organization wants. Um, So as an example, the organization can decide that you only have a few seconds to read the question and you have to start recording the response right away. Right, right, okay. They can also also decide to give applicants as much time as they want to prepare before they press the button that says, yeah, I want to start recording my answer. 
Um, so it really depends on the organization. It depends on the platform they are using. There are dozens of them out there. Um, and so it's a decision the company has to make. So what if you're halfway through an interview, and I'm sure this has come up more than once, you're halfway through an interview, you're on a roll, you're, you're, you know, and, and things are going fine, and the next question catches you a little bit by surprise, throws you off your rhythm, and you, and you end up going, geez, I'd really like to answer that one again. I don't think I did myself any favors at all. Can you do a redo in the middle of the interview? Well, again, that, it depends. Uh, the, those platforms can afford applicants to do uh, multiple recordings of their responses in some cases, but that is, again, the organizations to decide sure. whether they want to offer that opportunity. So, yeah, in some cases, you'll be able to record a second time, maybe be more, uh, and then at the end, you can pick your best um, kind of response. So you can say, I've tried three times this hard question, and I think my third one was the best, so I'm going to submit this one to the company for review. But again, in other organizations or other cases, they will just give you one shot and you have to do well um, the first time. Exactly. And of course, that would more replicate the live interview scenario, wouldn't it, Dr. Rulin? Because there you yeah, are exactly. across the desk from the hiring person, and that, ha- that person has the series of questions and you don't get to go, um, you know, I, can I answer that one again? <laughs> That's not how it works. You, you may take a second, a deep breath, and compose your thoughts, but you don't get a take two if you're sitting across the desk from someone. Now, the other part of the advice that you and your team have, uh, have gathered is for organizations, is for those companies who are now using uh, a higher view or any one of a number of virtual companies. Talk to us about some of the recommendations you have for hiring companies? Sure. Um, Well, the first thing is that organizations need to be aware that for applicants, it's a new and probably stressful format. So we want to provide job applicants as much information, instruction, advice as possible. It would be very useful to have, for instance, a practice question to start. So they could start recording their the answer to a practice question that doesn't count for the job application, right. but just to get used to the platform. Um, so that's the first first element. The second one is if they have a platform that allows for some flexibility in terms of, you know, how much time applicants have to prepare, how much time you give applicant to answer the question, Mm -hmm. maybe the re-recording option, you want to provide those options to applicant as much as you can, because it will lower the applicant's stress, it will be uh, more comfortable for them, and it will allow them to be more, uh, you know, at their best when they're answering the question. So that's probably the, the best advice we would start with. Okay, and then, of course, it also has uh, something to do with the types of question you're asking, too. You, you encourage companies to, of course, address the specific task that they're hiring for, but also to give the individual a chance to describe him or herself to some degree. Yes, so there are, there are two ways organizations can really do that. One way is to ask applicants about their past uh, work experience or maybe school experiences for, for an entry-level position and asking applicants to describe a situation where they have faced some work-related problem and how they have dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that problem has been chosen or that issue has been chosen because it's a requirement for the job they're applying for. So, for instance, 
If you are applying for a manager position where you have to lead subordinates, you want to ask a question about leadership. Tell me about a time where you were in charge of a team of multiple employees or colleagues or students and you were facing some difficulties. What did you do, for instance? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one solution. The other solution is what we call a situational question where we actually provide a little scenario to a job applicant that could look like what they would face on the job and then ask them how they would handle that situation. Ah, of course, right. How would you deal with this? Uh, how would you, as the potential manager, step in and, and uh, try to control this situation? Interesting stuff. I'm going to just pass along, again, the uh, web address for this practice video interview that you've, you've organized. It's uh, obilab, obiilab.com, obiilab.com. It's at the University of Calgary, uh, and it's a fascinating opportunity, particularly, Nick, for those who, as I mentioned, are in the workforce perhaps reluctantly and unexpectedly uh, and are all of a sudden confronted with a hiring uh, format and uh, approach that uh, they may not have seen before or may not be terribly comfortable with. So uh, congratulations to you and your team, by the way, for a terrific article. It's uh, at theconversation.com, friends. It's entitled, How to Land a Job When Companies Have Shifted to Virtual Hiring. And they also include a link to obilab.com so you can have a couple of practice runs before you actually take on an algorithm and uh, an AVI. Nick Rulin, thanks very much for joining us this morning. A terrific article, great work, and we do appreciate your time very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Nicholas Rulin, Associate Professor of Industrial and Organizational Psychology in Halifax this morning at St. Mary's University. Lots of discussion these days at the federal level and certainly at the provincial level. A lot of people gathered around uh, discussion groups uh, over in Victoria and around the province trying to decide whether or not to call a provincial election. That news could be happening sometime later today or tomorrow at the latest. That's the speculation here. Uh, at the same time, the government of Canada is very much involved in preparing for its speech from the throne, which will happen this coming Wednesday. Wednesday, and which will include, to one degree or another, some format or formula for restoring the, Acadia, the Canadian economy back to uh, normal or moving forward to different directions. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program, who has doubtless been involved in many of those discussions. She is the chair of the Canada Economic Strategy Table for Health and Biosciences, and also the CEO of Vancouver's Quark Venture. A real pleasure to welcome Karima S. Sabar to our program this morning. Karima, thank you for joining us, and good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to to join you this morning. Well, it's good to have you with us. Could you take a moment, please, before we start uh, looking forward and tell us a little bit about your job as chair of the Health Biosciences Economic Strategy Table, please? That's quite a mouthful, and uh, you've been at it for a while. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, You know, these economic strategy tables, um, concept came out of the Prime Minister's Growth uh, Council uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, in uh, 2018, um, you know, a big conclusion that the Council came up with was that there were some key sectors which were, you know, innovation-driven, knowledge-driven, that needed to um, uh, be pulled out and, and addressed and looked at 
uh, to kind of get us on a leapfrog strategy in building the economy. And, and these were around, you won't be surprised, around advanced manufacturing, agriculture, digital, health and biosciences, um, uh, new technologies and the resource sector and so forth. And then more recently, we've added to that post-COVID, uh, of course, some of the sectors that have really been decimated by COVID. Mm-hmm. And, and those are, um, you know, transportation and tourism uh, and the retail sector as well. And so uh, my role uh, as chair of health and biosciences is to really bring the opportunity. And health is one of our biggest expenditures in the country, as you know. Sure. Um, every province spends almost 50% of their the budget on health, to, to uh, tie that to our bioscience, our very robust bioscience industry that we have uh, in Canada, um, because we have such an incredible uh, education system, a tertiary education system, and R&D and so forth, which is the watering hole for this industry, uh, to tie that to this economic component of it that you know health is wealth and wealth is health mm-hmm. and i can talk more about it as we go along indeed well it, it's interesting that uh, you, you've already uh, thank you for opening the door to post-covid uh, in terms of the mandate that you've received and how because of covid everyone's job including yours has changed to some degree and, and certainly priorities have also been changed have you been involved now we know that the government is planning a throne speech it's going to be delivered delivered this week. It'll be followed presumably by a budget in March, uh, which, uh, and there may or may not be a federal election involved. No one knows that uh, detail at all. But have you and your board, your colleagues on the the health and biosciences uh, group, uh, contributed at all to the conversation going forward about reshaping the Canadian economy? So what's happened, Sterling, is that you know, immediately with the COVID situation, uh, there was a new council that was set up by government, uh, which is the Industry Strategy Council. And um, all of these economic tables are part of that discussion on that council and uh, including others to look at the economy, uh, you know, the short term reopening and recovery and then to look at it from the longer term uh, and, the, and the more opportunistic uh, approach of what we can do differently, what we should do more of uh, and what we shouldn't do um, to get things moving so that we can leapfrog a little bit. And all of that work is ongoing by the Industry Strategy Council mm-hmm. uh, until the, the end of this, um, you know, September, at which point we will submit our recommendations uh, of the council's final recommendations to, to government. There have been an enormous amount of engagement sessions. I can't even tell you, uh, you know, the council itself meets for several hours uh, every other week. And then every week and every day we have consultation sessions with the different groups. And all of this has been pulled together so that we can, um, you know, provide uh, you know, we're identifying sectoral and economic-wide pain points, barriers to provide high-level ideas to stabilize uh, and set the stage for recovery, but also for the longer term uh, to um, uh, ensure that, you know, supply chains and, and, and all of those things are addressed on a, on a more um, 
uh, resilient basis. Interesting. And then we're also looking at, and we're also looking at the big picture of you know of the industrial sectors to kind of promote the innovation and economic inclusion and growth for the entire country. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, will then be taken up again by the economic strategy table. Interesting. So the council will put out its recommendations, then the tables will drill down and, and start looking at the implementation of that. What so that the- will come out. Uh, in a few weeks. Okay, so that's that's the timeline attached to it. A sort of end of September-ish is when the recommendations will go forward. I need to take a break, Karima, but just before I do, uh, in terms of the, yes. the, the, the kinds of directions the that industry could be seen to be taking more of as we go forward uh, are, are directions that are already being established, again, out of necessity with COVID. We're seeing, for example, large contracts for masks and other PPEs mm-hmm. being awarded to local, as in Canadian companies, we were, I would think, in the from from the Canadian perspective, perhaps a little too reliant upon foreign suppliers to handle our urgent needs, uh, and so that uh, correction has already been made as contracts have been already uh, uh, awarded and other bids are being solicited. So that already, uh, in terms of self sufficiency and self reliance going forward, the the ball is already in play, isn't it? It is in play. And, you know, we have to look beyond that. This is sort of a reaction to the situation now. But, you know, you can only respond to a crisis uh, of this magnitude uh, to, or to a pandemic and to the next pandemic. And, you know, there will be a next pandemic. Mm. We just don't know when that will be. The, the only way you can respond to this is if you already have established uh, ecosystems to respond to this. Mm-hmm. And maybe after your break, we could talk a little bit about that, you know, the opportunity post-COVID and the importance of having established innovation and digital ecosystems that enable you uh, to to respond. You have the people, the talent, the infrastructure, the funding, you know, all of these things have to be in place. Imagine if we didn't already have that, uh, how would we have responded? No you question. Know, we had the universities come together. We had industry come together. We had government responding. You know, these kinds of partnerships are critical, and we need to focus on that a lot more moving forward. Our guest is Karima S. Sabar, is the chair of the Health Biosciences Economic Strategy Table and also the CEO of a company called Quark Venture here in Vancouver that's been around for a few years. That uh, I, uh, Karima, uh, to summarize what Quark is up to, it's a venture capital firm specializing in investments in the uh, biosciences uh, uh, sector of the economy, correct? Exactly, exactly, Sterling. So, you know, the, the, the life sciences um, ecosystem and the life science uh, um, uh, sector is, is, a, is a complex one. You know, you, 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 you have to have great world-class science and discovery as the watering hole. And we're very fortunate in Canada that we have incredible, um, you know, academic and research institutions. So that's already there. And, you know, governments, all governments have been investing in that and should continue to. But then you need to have you know, infrastructure, you need to have physical infrastructure, the kinds of labs and, and, and uh, high-tech equipment that, that's required for this, but you also need the hospital networks, you need, you know, world-class clinicians, you need talent, the best 
people and experts in their field, because this is not a a jurisdictional uh, or regional uh, endeavor. You know, the the, the biosciences is really a global endeavor. You need world-leading experts wherever they are, uh, you know, participating. So you need that. You need entrepreneurs um, to, um, you know, set up the the, the startup companies, Mm -hmm. get SMEs built up. You need capital. Uh, you know, without capital, you can't do anything. And you need local capital and you need to be able to attract international capital. And then you can build companies and create, you know, anchor companies that are multi-billion dollar anchor companies. Or we have a lot of M&A also that goes on in this sector and you create a lot of, um, you know, economic wealth. High paying, the most high paying jobs, one of the greenest sectors in the world. So all of those things. I come from the world of life sciences. I'm a neurochemist by training. I've Mm -hmm. always been in the biopharma industry. My whole career has been in that. And um, I pretty much worked in all parts of the ecosystem. And the last part was the the financing and the funding. So we set up Quark Venture as a global fund uh, um, to invest only in health tech. And it's all kinds of health tech, whether it's... uh, um, uh, uh, you know, discovery in in um, uh, biosciences, or whether it's in med tech, or whether it's in digital health, but it has to be related to health. And today, there's a lot of converging of technologies. So the next generation of companies that are being spun out are really uh, with converging technologies, genomics and data, and you know, uh, med tech and digital and so on and so forth. Exactly. And so these boundaries are kind of becoming fuzzy. So, but we need to have a health component to whatever we invest in. We're a global um, organization, venture capital firm. So we invest all over the world. So it's very competitive. And we in, we've invested in many Canadian companies. That are, they are very competitive. We have fantastic science in Canada. And actually what COVID has done is put a real focus on Canada's science and capability and how important it is. There's a new respect for Canadian science. Interesting. Let's talk about, uh, con- let's connect the two dots then between what you do with Quark and the conversation we were having yes. before the break and talk about the possibility of perhaps, say, uh, public-private partnerships going forward to the advantage of all parties concerned as we restructure the economy. Absolutely. And as I, I said before, you know, this pandemic has demonstrated that A, science is a global enterprise and has shown how interconnected global science and bio, the biopharmaceutical industry and the local um, SMEs and academic institutions are. They are extremely interconnected. Mm-hmm. What is really important moving forward is that we rebuild public-private partnerships and strengthen this scaffold of public-private partnerships because no single entity is going to be able to provide the solutions that we need. And even as we look at what happened uh, for for COVID uh, in the pivoting of companies that when we had a shortage of PPEs or we needed, you know, ventilators, and, Mm -hmm. you know, now we're producing a new generation of ventilators because organizations like Triumph have come together with, you know, uh, uh, private um, companies and and government is facilitating that. Those are the kinds of, you know, robust uh, public-private partnerships we have to have to respond quickly. And we have to have those relationships in place. There has to, you know, we have to build this mutual trust and respect. 
and working relationship so we can respond quickly to the next time we have a crisis, which we hope will not be very soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, this seems to be a trend that has gathered its own momentum, and it looks to be an important part of uh, the the restructuring uh, announcement. Now, uh, again, this is a very political question, and you can decline to answer, but as all of this chatter in both Victoria and Ottawa is going up, do you expect any elections between now and, shall we say, Christmas? Oh, uh, Sterling, I'm no expert in that. So I <laughs> and neither am I. This is why I'm all. asking. <laughs> I, think, I think you were expecting that answer from me. Uh, well, uh, no, I, I cannot comment. I'm really not an expert on that. But what I will tell you is that let's not miss the opportunity. COVID-19 has provided us with a unique opportunity to reset and reshape our society. It really has. We can either take this opportunity, and you know, every crisis has provided this, or we can go back to the same old, same old. And I, being the eternal optimist, am very optimistic that we will grab this opportunity so that the collectives, and I mean governments, corporations, industry, academia, technology, healthcare and educational organizations, and civil society, will come together realizing that we can we can have a different kind of a world. We can really think big on this and take this opportunity to build a kinder, a more equitable, inclusive and sustainable and highly innovation driven economy. Karima S. Sabar, thank you so much for this. We appreciate your thoughts and your contribution to the program today. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll we'll talk again. Time to talk about the pharmacists of British Columbia. This is a group in our midst that I have a great deal of time for and uh, delighted to see over the years uh, more and more of us recognizing the contributions pharmacists make in our daily lives. It's a real pleasure to welcome the CEO of the BC Pharmacy Association to the program this morning as we say good morning to Geraldine Vance. Good morning, Sterling. Nice to have you with us, Geraldine. We appreciate you getting up early on a Sunday morning. And this time around, uh, as you and your colleague Bryce Wong are going to remind us, flu season is almost upon us and things will be, well, a little different this year. Well, we certainly are finding that 2020 is not what anyone would have expected of the first year of a new decade. No kidding. Yes, indeed. We expect flu season to be a bit different, too. So now uh, that goes now. First of all, it's important to remind people that BC pharmacists are now eligible to give you your flu shots. You don't need to go to the doctor necessarily. How long has that been part of the deal, Geraldine? Well, interestingly enough, if we think about the last time we had a uh, a pandemic-like crisis, H1N1, in 2009, uh, small by comparison now when we look at COVID-19, but that was when uh, pharmacists were given injection authority. They were asked to step up and and help curb the problems with H1N1 and ensure that people were um, given their vaccinations. And so that's when pharmacists started to do vaccinations. So 2009. So it's been a while. Interesting stuff because, you know, I went to your website, bcpharmacy.ca, the uh, Pharmacists Association website. And if you scroll down, uh, this is uh, mostly for pharmacists. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, an insider kind of thing. And you look at upcoming events and administration of injections. That's a, a clinic 
clinic for pharmacists scheduled for September 20th sold out. There's another one coming up in a few days. That one's today. But there's one I'm coming up next Sunday in Kelowna. Again, administration of injections. So would these be refresher courses for pharmacists, Geraldine, who are just making sure that they're uh, on top of all the latest techniques? They can be, and they also for uh, pharmacists that come to us from other provinces and other countries. So uh, sort of a, a mix. Ah, so are, is it only in British Columbia that pharmacists have the uh, capability to deliver flu shots and the like? Uh, no, we have some other provinces, Alberta, and um, certainly other provinces has caught up. But um, BC was really amongst the first. And in, in 2009, I'll give you a little bit of a comparison, um, 30,000 people, British Columbians, went to their pharmacist and got their flu shot. And last year, almost 800,000 British Columbians went and got their flu shot. So the uh, British Columbians have really voted with their feet, if I can say that, or voted with their arms. Um, to entrust pharmacists to give them that all-important annual flu shot. And what a, what a relief to the rest of the health delivery system, Geraldine. My gosh, there's another issue that uh, quite qualified professionals can help out on and take a little pressure off others. Absolutely, and this year that's really important because we all know that since March, many family doctor's offices in particular have had reduced hours or gone to only virtual clinics, and now that they're seeing patients in their office they're really wanting to see the most crucial patients that they need to see. Right. And so we're all reducing traffic into places um, like doctor's offices. Also, public health, we hear Dr. Bonnie Henry every day talk to us about the contact tracing that they're doing. So the normal public health clinics that where people would go for their flu shot in the, in the fall, those clinics may not be operating as they were last year, either because those people and nurses and others are doing other things. So pharmacists are going to play really a central role this fall. And another thing you just mentioned quite casually was the fact that uh, you were talking about pharmacists and seeing clients in their office. This is, again, uh, that uh, the pharmacist, for example, if, you, if you've been prescribed a new medication uh, and you're not sure uh, how it's going to integrate with your existing medication uh, program, uh, the doctor, of course, is, is uh, the one who prescribes, but nonetheless, may not be, uh, there may not be time in that conversation to have uh, a sit down and okay, so now I'm going to start taking this. How's it going to interact with this and this and this and how many times a day? So the pharmacist is now in that position to have a consultation very similar to the one you would have had with your doctor specifically about the types of meds you're taking. Very much. There's a, a service that's been in place since um, 2010 um, called medication reviews. And Oftentimes, patients might be on multiple medications, yes. and they, they may also add some supplements, whether it's something as simple as you know vitamin D or CoQ or any number of things. So it's really important for your healthcare provider, certainly your, your physician, but your pharmacist to know everything that you're taking. And so a medication review service allows a patient and their pharmacist to have that conversation. Also, I think one of the things that since... March, when so many things have changed, I think March is going to be the, the March 2020, the, the month of the year we will remember most. The great lockdown. <laughs> the great lockdown is that pharmacists, of course, stayed open as essential healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. And for many British Columbians, they found out for the first time many of the things that a pharmacist could already do, such as extend a prescription, or if you had an existing prescription, to be able to renew that prescription, 
or if you couldn't reach your doctor in time and you hadn't gotten your medications, you can certainly go to your pharmacist, call your pharmacist, and get an extension, an emergency fill, really, to your prescription. So there's a range of things that I think a lot of British Columbians now know that their pharmacists can do for them that they didn't, perhaps, in, in February. That's a very good point, because when we got locked down in March, Geraldine, uh, you know, we, we were concerned. It's, it appears, in hindsight, that we're more concerned about toilet paper than just about anything else in our lives. <laughs> and, you know, and we forgot important details, like, oops, I didn't get my prescription renewed, and, oh, man, now the docs are only seeing virtual this, that, and, oh, what, what am I going to do? And you end up calling the pharmacy, and over the short term, they'll go, well, look, we'll take care of it here. Give you plenty of time to call your doctor and get that prescription renewed. In the meantime, you're good to go. And that happened to a lot of people to their enormous surprise. <laughs> I think so. Pharmacists are those, you know, sort of I, I think of pharmacists as the unsung heroes really in the in the healthcare system because they quietly go about their job and interact with their patients and Sometimes what you know about the pharmacist is only the one thing that you go to them for. And so I think if it, Certainly this period of time has, I think, demonstrated to patients just the resource that pharmacists can be for them. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to talk to Bryce Wong uh, uh, more about this, but uh, by way of uh, letting you go and thanking you for your time this morning, Geraldine, great to have you with us, too. Well, I, it's I, been I a real pleasure. I don't think we've met before. so this... No, I don't think we have, so it's very nice to meet you on the radio. This is lovely. Uh, are there going to be, uh, are, are we expecting two flu shots this year, Geraldine? Clearly, there will be the flu shot the one that people, most people, or certainly a great number of people take every year, typically in October. And then we've got our fingers crossed uh, for a COVID vaccine. So it, it's, are people who typically would take a flu shot, uh, is it recommended that they go about that as normally as always and then keep their fingers crossed for a COVID shot too? Certainly, and I think the other thing that, that they want to talk to their pharmacist about is are they up to date with some of their other immunizations? You know, have they had a measles shot? Have they had a pneumonia shot? So and we want to be sure that people are as resilient as possible going into the, the, the fall. If we have a, a lesson from our friends in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia, the flu season there was thankfully not as tough as it has been in years, and maybe we'll get that too. Um, but certainly people want to be as, as armed and equipped as possible to be as resilient going into the fall and winter as possible, and so see your pharmacist. Okay, any word on when the first flu shots, the regular variety, might be available to British Columbians? We think potentially a bit earlier than last year, so maybe as early as the first week in October. Okay, well, we'll just uh, keep our eyes open. Geraldine Vance, thanks very much for this. Great to speak to you. Well, uh, we must do this again. Yes. For sure, anytime. Lovely to speak with you, too. Thanks very much. Geraldine Vance is CEO of the BC Pharmacy Association. Now, we're talking pharmacy here for this half hour. Bryce Wong is with us. Mr. Wong is Director of Pharmacy Practice Support for the BC Pharmacy Association. Bryce, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. When people go for the flu shot, Geraldine Vance was just with us talking about the flu shots and how they may, in fact, even be a week or so earlier this year than we're accustomed to, say, the first week of October, Bryce. But when we go for the shot this year uh, to our local pharmacy, and as it turns out, uh, 800,000 of us did precisely that last year. So, But it'll be a little different this year, beginning with you just don't walk into the pharmacy, you make an appointment this year, right? Correct. Yeah. I think uh, Geraldine touched on it that uh, um, 
that uh, Australia or the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia, New Zealand, had a had a mild flu season. And mm-hmm. I think what we've learned, I think what we've learned from them as well as uh, past pandemics, is that usually following a, a pandemic, the anticipation uh, uh, there's an increased demand for flu shots, and so. Uh, our province uh, uh, see, saw the increase in demand in the southern hemisphere, and so this year they've ordered close to two million uh, flu vaccines, which is about 25 percent uh, more than normal. And uh, in previous years, like Geraldine mentioned, pharmacists already administered about 800,000 uh, flu vaccinations, and this year I think we're expected to, you know, take up some of the slack uh, to um, to administer that increased uh, amount of, of vaccination. So it's definitely going to be easier in the pharmacy or there there will be more people coming to the pharmacy for their vaccinations and uh, like you said it, it is going to be a little bit different so pharmacies are going to be managing that increased demand but they're also going to be uh, ensuring that uh, the public can come in uh, and their staff can remain safe uh, while giving those flu shots sure so, So some of the things that you're going to notice will be a little bit different in pharmacy this year. Pharmacists are going to be wearing uh, PPE. So at minimum, they're going to be wearing a mask and some eye protection. Mm -hmm. And they'll be also ensuring that there's not too many people in the pharmacy at at one time. Uh, They may also be doing some additional cleaning uh, of the vaccination areas. And some pharmacies might also be even conducting outdoor uh, clinics, you know, where the the weather uh, permits. they may also be asking uh, people who are coming in to their, get their flu shot um, to wear a mask or a face covering yes, uh, yep. beca- because you're not going to be able to maintain that physical distance you know, when you're getting your, your flu shot. Well, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, in addition, you know, if, if people are feeling any kind of symptoms of uh, a respiratory illness, you know, pharmacists are, are asking to please uh, defer your appointment uh, and come in when you're, when you're feeling better. Uh, now, like what you had referenced, uh, many people might be having to book an appointment for their flu shot. So that is, that's also true. So because they're trying to manage this increased uh, volume, uh, as well as maintain the physical distancing, mm-hmm. uh, many pharmacies are probably going to reduce their, their walk-in type flu shot service. And many will be implementing an appointment-based model. So that would mean for, uh, for people who are looking to get their flu shot, uh, call in uh, before you go in for your flu shot, uh, or many might be implementing an online booking system. So go online and sure. book your appointment uh, ahead of coming in just to make sure that you, the pharmacy can get you in and out as efficiently and safely as possible. So the best idea, Bryce, would be uh, if you are anticipating a flu shot again this year, just call the pharmacy even now and say, look, I know it's, it's not time yet, but what's yeah. your strategy this year? And is there a list? And if so, can I get on it, please? And, and then Correct. they'll call you back uh, when the uh, when the vaccine arrives at the pharmacy, and you'll be uh, on that priority list because you put yourself there. Correct. Yeah. Another another way to find out where to get your flu shot, you can go to the Immunize BC uh, flu locator, and so they'll have all the pharmacies as well as other providers uh, on there, and you can look them up by uh, I guess by your geographic region. Uh, and and it may say on that website as well where you or how to book an appointment with those uh, with the pharmacies. So they may have an online booking system. They can click a link there and then just do that online without having to 
have the back and forth over the phone. Right. Uh, Bryce, I'm just curious about your job description, Director of Pharmacy Practice Support. And and I was asking Geraldine about the seminars that the pharmacists have organized. For example, the Administration of Injections Seminar. Today's is sold out next Sunday up in Kelowna. Probably going to be sold out as well. Do you conduct those? Do you organize those? Is, part, is that part of what you do? Uh, I don't directly, uh, but my department is responsible for for organizing those uh, those workshops. Yeah, and I imagine the, uh, the it sounds like the interest is very keen. And Geraldine mentioned that in some cases the participants in these uh, clinics or refresher clinics uh, would be local people, but some coming in from other places in Canada just to to learn. So, do pharmacists treat this as a refresher on an annual basis in some cases, Bryce? Uh, there's some cases of that, but the, the majority of, of, uh, of pharmacists that do continue to take these workshops, they're typically, yeah, like Geraldine said, they're typically pharmacists from other provinces mm-hmm. who may have not taken the training yet in those provinces. Uh, they could also be international pharmacy graduates who didn't have uh, an equivalent training program from where they, they received their training. Interesting stuff. Now, as a result of the COVID, uh, the industry as a uh, as a group has had to adopt rapidly, uh, pivot being the the operative word, to new conditions, a new a new business model, and that would very much fall into your bailiwick, I'm sure, Bryce. These past six months, in terms of adjusting strategy province wide for British Columbia pharmacists to a stay open because they are an essential service, and b stay safe in the process been busy uh, yeah i've been very busy and and like many industries you know we're we're sort of learning as we go and so as the association we've been trying to develop resources and guidance documents to try to uh try to inform our members about you know how to continue to operate and ensure the safety of their staff and the public and you referenced and both you and geraldine referenced australia as uh, i would sh- i would assume in today's hyper-connected world, pharmacists literally around the planet are watching each other and coaching each other and cheering each other on in terms of dealing with this pandemic because it's the same everywhere when it comes down to people and the human toll this takes. Yeah, we're, we're definitely all watching what each other are doing and uh, because they've they've kind of gone through their flu season, we, we there's definitely some learnings that uh, that we're gaining from from them. Uh, uh, Bryce, a silly question, perhaps, but an important one nonetheless. Is a, is is there charge for a flu shot in BC? So the flu shot is is free in in BC for most uh, for most British Columbians. Uh, in particular. Um, uh, in particular, individuals who are at high risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those would typically be individuals like young children, uh, pregnant women, the elderly, uh, people with certain high risk medical medical conditions, and as well as people who can transmit uh, the flu to those who are at high risk. Right. So all of those. All of those groups of people are eligible to get the the vaccination at no cost. Okay, and if there is a charge, if for some reason you're outside those uh, parameters, what is the t- what is the fee? Uh, it, it varies by pharmacy, so I would I would probably inquire with the pharmacy uh, to figure out what what they may be charging for that. Is it service. is it safe to say less than fifty bucks? Yeah, usually it's less. Well, for the for the actual 
service itself, it's less than $50. But then there's also the cost of the vaccination. As sure. Well. So it's something I would probably check with the pharmacy. All right. Well, Bryce, appreciate your time this morning. Great to have you with us. And a, a, a wonderful reminder of the valuable work that pharmacists do ever so quietly and ever so efficiently in our midst every day. Thank you for this. Thanks, Sterling. Bryce Wong, Director of Pharmacy Practice Support with the BC Pharmacists Association. Patty Backus joins us now to take a look at the rollout, the back-to-school rollout, now that we've had, well, some experience a little bit under our belts. Patty, good morning. Nice to have you back on the show. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you back. Uh, as you've uh, written about all of this uh, prior to, you had a whole summer to write about what to expect. And uh, I wonder, uh, when you were composing some of those columns back in, say, August, before the actual school thing started, how close are you to some of your predictions that you made, uh, say, six weeks ago? <laughs> Well, I'm not sure they were predictions. They were concerns and cautions that we would need to be thinking about smaller class sizes and how we would distance and plans. And of course, a lot of that didn't happen. So a lot of the things I was hoping would be implemented don't seem to really be uh, coming to fruition in the in the implementation that we're seeing in the last. uh, Now we've had our first full week of classes. So There's been a lot of inconsistency across the province uh, from what I'm hearing from uh, parents who've contacted me, some students and uh, teachers and support workers, and a lot of concerns about um, problems with the cleaning protocols, uh, very full classes Mm -hmm. where it's uh, impossible to, to distance and, and the use of masks remains fairly controversial and uneven across our public schools. So are you hearing now, you, you, you're, uh, you've been around the block a few times. You have contacts all over the province. <laughs> yeah. Now, you, you used to run the show here in Vancouver, but you have colleagues in the education business all over BC. Uh, are, you, are, you, are you noticing, mm-hmm. as is likely, that, for example, there are just flat out more issues in the Vancouver and Victoria areas where there are simply more people than there are in rural areas? Or are the concerns pretty equally shared? Well, I think the issue, excuse me, the smoke has gotten to my voice. Me too. So I'm clear, so I'm a little rough this morning. Um, what I'm hearing, I mean, I think what the concern is, particularly in Metro Vancouver, is there's a much higher case count sure. for COVID cases. So um, I'm hearing similar concerns in other areas, you know, even on Vancouver Island, but the anxiety isn't quite as high because there doesn't seem to be as much uh, COVID out in the community. And they, and we're already hearing, of course, in, in particularly Metro Vancouver, but even up in Quinell and then mm-hmm. some other areas of the province that there have been COVID exposures in schools. Now, these are cases that have been diagnosed in someone. It doesn't mean it was transmitted in the school, but right. someone who has been in the school has <clears throat> tested positive for COVID. So that you know, obviously is a huge concern. Um, you know, we're hoping we don't reach a point where there's transmission and then hopefully the protocols will prevent that from happening. But I do think the, you know, we're hearing particularly the Surrey School District has had a number of schools and secondary schools with with exposure events. So, you know, that's a, a very concerning uh, development so early in the school year. But I would say the inconsistency of the implementation of the guidelines is is 
spread all over BC. Okay. And I'm hearing from people all over BC with concerns about that. Uh, the uh, the fact that there, uh, and uh, I think it's important that you've distinguished between incidents or cases of COVID reporting in some schools, Patty, versus transmission occurring in schools, because it's the same as people who have been on flights, for example, in which they may have been exposed. That doesn't mean they caught it. Uh, it, it just means that they were exposed to it. Some of this had to be utterly predictable. When you send a population of what? How many ch- how many children have we got in BC? What is it? Eight hundred and fifty thousand, something like that. Back to uh, back yeah. back to the education process uh, uh, in a time of a pandemic. De- pandemic, rather. It's entirely likely that some cases will be countable, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the public health officials have been clear about that, that, you know, we are trying, we we are living with this now. It's out there. Um, If there is uh, a a certain rate of infection out in the community, it's going to show up uh, wherever we are. Where I think the difference is, and particularly for people I'm hearing from, and again, it's not just teachers, it's, it's students themselves. Some of them have very anxious about this illness and parents and, and other workers in the schools is that, they have less ability to protect themselves than you might in another setting. Um, I know I heard earlier on your show talking about pharmacies and yes. how they will handle giving flu shots mm-hmm. and, and all of the precautions that will be in place. And those kind of precautions aren't in place in schools um, necessarily. So you can have 30 people in a relatively small classroom not wearing masks for several hours of the day. Uh, that's a concern. Um, teachers are telling me that the, the minimal personal protective equipment that they were promised isn't always available. Uh, so they're scrambling in some cases if they feel they would want, like to wear a, a visor with a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also can't require students to wear the masks in class. So, you know, I, I can understand why some people are anxious about being sitting closely. And I'm, I'm hearing this from students as well, that they sit sometimes two to a desk. They often don't have individual desks. And they're very close to their classmates and who may not be wearing masks for extended periods and there's you know discussion people are talking and we know now more about how the virus transmits so there is anxiety that schools have less protection in place than most other workplaces would the government of bc has announced uh, through the feds uh, to a large extent patty a significant increase in funding available to schools and boards uh, for specifically for covid adaptation uh, is is this are you seeing boards uh, and districts take advantage of this new money and if so then separating some of those desks getting those two to a desk scenarios removed um i from what i understand most boards haven't actually determined how they're going to spend that federal money that was announced just before school startup um i don't believe it's even arrived yet in their accounts i am already hearing that some schools are having to ration their hand sanitizer Mm -hmm, that there isn't enough custodial time to do all of the cleaning um, even in a classroom, you know, I'm not even sure they could replace some of those desks with single desks because sometimes there just isn't room. Um, you know, I would hope that that they would maximize the use of those. I had hoped uh, from the from the start of this planning at the beginning of the summer that they would look for strategies to either reduce class sizes or find bigger spaces to hold classes in, so you had more ability to distance. That doesn't seem to even be happening with this funding coming, and that would have taken some planning that would have had to happen in the summertime. What do we know about... And, of course, you know... 
Go ahead. Sorry, Patty. Just finish your Pardon? thought. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Uh, the other, the other, of course, uh, difficulty that all school districts in Metro Vancouver had to deal with was the smoke. Yeah. Uh, a key layer of protection is ventilation or, or holding classes outdoors. And for many older schools, the ventilation is the window if you can open it or take your class outside. And, That's of right. course, last week that was not possible. So it's been a pretty tough start, a really yeah. tough start. And I know uh, school districts and staff have really been trying to do their best, but under very trying circumstances. Well, and and really, I mean, uh, on top of all of the other COVID-19 realities and all of the uh, rehearsals and the dry runs and all the rest of it. So finally, we get into a situation where actually sending the little darlings back to school and we get this world-class smoke thing that happens and we can't even open the window in the classroom it's that bad you'll be relieved to know that today the air quality advisory has been lifted so tomorrow i think the windows will be open in most of the classrooms patty well i sure hope so i mean we all need that breath of fresh air badly no kidding i i hope i hope that makes 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 the week a little easier. I know I heard from many, many uh, teachers in the system that they just found last week absolutely exhausting and stressful trying to you know, figure out all these new routines, even things like for primary teachers having to supervise hand washing for mm-hmm. 25 students or 26 students with one sink and how much time that takes up and reminding students. And hopefully that will get easier as the year goes on as students are more in, into a routine and these things become more of a habit. But it's been a really rough start. I think there could have been much better attention to some of these these pieces. And I, you know, we heard the BCTF went to the Labor Relations yep. Board asking for for some support in terms of enforcement of of guidelines and better guidelines. Um, right now, it, it just seems that there's not consistency. So I'm hearing different. Even from school to school, um, I've heard from substitute teachers who get sent out to different schools and how it's different on every site. Uh, the rules are being applied differently. Um, some schools seem to have it down and working really well, and I'm hoping you know others can learn from those ones. Well, hopefully, but, at least now um, that we can all breathe deeply, uh, yeah. that, that'll give us another chance to think a little bit more clearly, and we can sort of get on onto the same page and make things a little better for everyone involved. Patty, thanks for taking some time this morning. Great to have you back. My pleasure. Thank you, Sterling. There's Patty Backus, a former Vancouver School Board Chair, education columnist, joined by Walt Judas, who is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of British Columbia, as uh, we talk about, well, restoring the economy and the hard-hit hospitality sector. Walt Judas, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Sterling. Good morning. Nice to be here. Well, it's it's good to have you with us. Now, you've been on TV. I saw you on Global just the other day, as a matter of fact, because there is some money at play. All of a sudden, you and a tourism uh, industry representatives from across Canada have been lobbying the feds uh, vigorously for quite some time to uh, recognize the, the nature of the damage that COVID has done to your industry and looking for some government assistance. There has been an announcement of some. Tell us about that, Walt, especially as it compares to what you were asking for? Well, as you know, the other day the province introduced the $1.5 billion recovery package mm-hmm. that had been in the offing for several months. And for the tourism industry specifically, they allocated $100 million. We had asked for six eighty. And the way we view this is a really good start. You may recall that during the press conference, both Minister James and the Premier said this is a start. Right. 
so that's the way we're looking at it is, um, you know, it'll help businesses certainly in the short term address some of their liquidity challenges, particularly small and medium-sized businesses. But we're really counting on more to come in the months ahead, particularly over the medium to long term, because many businesses may not last until next year. So part of that money that was set aside for tourism has yet to be determined, at least the distribution thereof. There is $50 million mm-hmm. that will be overseen by a task force, but the province also has a separate $300 million grant program that tourism businesses are eligible for with uh, a, a specific top-up for those in tourism and hospitality because our industry has been so devastated. Walt, what form uh, do would the money take as it as it gets paid out to uh, tourism and much of tourism? They're not all. It's not all about the big hotel chains. There are the bulk of the industry is the small business operator, and so how do those individuals and those businesses avail themselves of the funds? How will the money flow? It'll be through an application process. The details haven't yet been posted, but our main objective is to get the money into the hands of tourism operators as quickly as possible. So we'll look forward to seeing details in the very near future, uh, because now that the fall and uh, impending winter months uh, are upon us, those operators need those uh, grants in fairly short order to continue to pay their monthly expenses. Now, you mentioned the hotels, and I think this is something, too, that we need to be aware of. Whether it's hotels or large attractions like the Capilano Suspension Bridge Mm -hmm. or excursions like the Rocky Mountaineer, those are large companies that were effectively idle, at least in the case of Rocky Mountaineer, the cruise industry, the meetings and conventions sector. The uh, the packages that the province has introduced don't necessarily apply to so, some of those larger operators. So that's something that we'll be looking for, whether that's under the guise of the task force or some additional monies that can be found as a part of this year's or next year's budget. We want to make sure we're looking out for the larger operators because they are deeply impacted. And they're the ones that are employing hundreds, in some cases thousands of people, that need attention because you want those workers back in the fold at some point soon. And are the workers from some of those larger companies, Walt, are those companies still not eligible to receive federal benefits like the wage subsidy? I would assume they've certainly applied for for anything that they might be available. And that has been the lifeline for many tourism businesses, to be sure. Mm -hmm. It expires at the end of December. We've asked for an extension well into next year, or at least until the tourism industry and these operators are at 75% of what they would call normal revenues. But for many of those businesses that didn't open at all, obviously the wage subsidy program is a moot point. But nonetheless, it will be important. Once travel resumes, borders open, uh, we start to see the visitor economy uh, back up again. That wage subsidy will be critical to help these operators open again. Uh, you know, so looking at uh, some stuff in, uh, by way of preparing for our chat this morning, and I came across some numbers from the United States travel industry, and they are very specifically going after the leisure traveler, the business traveler. That model may have changed permanently, and they know they can't rely on that 
utterly predictable cash flow they used to really count on. So now they're going to refocus a lot of their time, energy, and ad budgets on leisure travelers. Uh, can you see the same sentiment up here in Canada, just in terms of knowing how COVID has changed things permanently? Well, certainly in the short term, that's important. And you saw what the province did over the past few months through Destination BC in trying to get British Columbians to travel more within their home province. We didn't promote necessarily to other provinces. They weren't uh, excluded for traveling to British Columbia, but they weren't necessarily marketed to. That said, the domestic market was important, and it allowed pockets of BC to see some good numbers in July and August, Mm -hmm. and in some cases into September. The business market, though, is vital. And uh, that represents some of the international travel that's here, but also business travelers spend more than leisure travelers on balance. So at some point, we're still going to want to target that market. The meetings and conventions area in particular is worth hundreds of millions of dollars provincially. There are major venues, there are hotels that are purpose-built for business travel, largely for international delegates, although domestically that's a it's a pretty strong market as well but we do want to see business travel along with leisure travel as well so maybe in the short term the target will be leisure until the travel restrictions are lifted and people are comfortable traveling on airplanes and so on, and then eventually the business market will return, and we're counting on both. Well, no kidding, especially Vancouver, Walt. I mean, here we are in just a jewel of a city that the whole world knows is a delight to come to, and you're right, we do significant convention and business gathering business on an annual basis to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. When was the last time, I was going to say when was the last time we had a convention in bc it was probably that dental conference in march that saw a few of its delegates actually get covid that was the last one that i can recall yeah there might have been one or two after that but uh it was effectively shut down uh after that dental conference and so you're absolutely right it's been a long time and What people don't realize, it's not only the convention center and the hotels with uh, delegates staying in hotels or some of the smaller meetings that take place, Mm -hmm. but there's a domino effect with conventions, too. There are people that are driving truck, for example, delivering food. There are multiple suppliers that help set up conventions, people that set up exhibitions, for example. Sure, yeah. There's a whole industry built around the meetings and conventions sector that uh, the average person would not see. So I I have witnessed the damage, and I see a lot of my professional colleagues on the sidelines without really any prospects for returning to work anytime soon until such time the gathering restrictions are lifted, at least the 50-person limitation is expanded, and or some of the international borders uh, are open to delegates and visitor traffic and a number of other conditions. But that, we suspect, is a little ways away. 
Indeed it is. So uh, now we're at the the announcement from uh, the Minister of Finance and the Premier. Uh, Lots of chatter these days, lots of uh, the emergency uh, bailout, the $1.5 billion uh, recovery program is on the table now. Uh, Lots of of planning appearing to start to form into uh, an action model. Now you were talking about uh, the uh, panel that will be overseeing uh, the applications from the uh, hospitality and tourism sector. Are you on that panel, Walt? I am, yes. And so yeah, you... looking forward to serving. Yeah, yeah, you, so you and your fellow panel members will be charged with the responsibility of uh, venting, uh, the vetting, rather, the applications and assigning dollars to deserving uh, applicants. Is that how that will work? Or will you recommend to the government that certain grants be given? Well, the terms of reference for the panel haven't yet been established, but they have suggested in the plan that it's to develop creative and innovative ideas to help tourism rebound. So to this point, it's not specific to handing out grants or helping companies, but it's certainly something that I would be interested in speaking to my fellow panelists about. I think there are businesses, the larger businesses in particular, that need help. They want to be innovative and creative in reopening their specific businesses or sector, and we have to find the means to be able to help them. But until the terms of reference for the task force are identified, it's difficult to comment. Of course. At the same time, though, I am hoping that some of those monies will help these businesses get back on their feet because they have suffered greatly since March. There's no question, Walt. It is just being an, an incredibly tough year for the entire hospitality sector. Uh, and uh, and I have members of it in my own family. I completely get the, the well, the, the stress, to say the very least, that a lot of these thousands of these people are living with on a daily basis. So we wish you and your fellow panelists considerable success in helping some of these people out. Walt, thanks for taking the time to join us uh, this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sterling. Always a pleasure. Walt Judas is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of British Columbia. We're looking at uh, an ad here for the uh, Capilano Suspension Bridge. Breathe in the fresh West Coast rainforest air on the Capilano Suspension Bridge, says the ad. Well, at least you can do that today. A, the bridge is open, unlike uh, what I said earlier. It's not closed for a couple of weeks yet. And B, you can actually get out there and breathe in the air. It's a pleasure to welcome uh, our next guest to the program, Nancy Stibbert, is the CEO of the Capilano Group up there at the Capilano Suspension Bridge. Nancy, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Well, hi, Sterling, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So what is the status? Now, the bridge is open on a daily basis, 9 to 5 today, for example. Until Is it the end of September then, Nancy, that you're closing? Yes, till the end of December. Things, uh, sorry, till the end of September. Uh, business really uh, dropped off sharply uh, on Labor Day, so there was really no point to staying open. Uh, and then, of course, we open again for Canyon Lights, which is uh, very popular with the locals. So we expect to see some visitation then. Well, I would think so, Nancy. My gosh, Canyon Lights is just a spectacular part of uh, of the Christmas season uh, for Lower Mainland people. They come from all over uh, Metro Vancouver for it. What is the reopening date with that spectacular, dazzling Can- uh, Canyon Lights show scheduled to be? 
So that'll be opening on December the 1st, and uh, we're going to go till uh, January 3rd. Okay, okay. And uh, so there'll be lots of information on the website and all that sort of stuff. Now, any uh, just uh, by way of changes that are, and, and ways of doing business, for example, the bridge is open for another few days until the end of September, Nancy. Uh, can you just walk up and buy a ticket? Or like a lot of other Vancouver area attractions, do you need to purchase tickets online before you arrive? Uh, well, you don't have to book online, uh, but we prefer it, and um, that will certainly keep uh, things uh, COVID safe. Uh, we have all the uh, procedures in place, uh, so um, and it is best for people to book. Sure. Otherwise, they may have to wait a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would imagine that it there, uh, as a result, also, again, has, as we've seen at Science World and the Aquarium and various other uh, art gallery and other locations around town, the crowd size is a little smaller. In other words, fewer people going through at any given time, right? Absolutely. Okay. And, of course, this summer we haven't had to worry about that too much because our business was down about 85% in terms of volume of people. That was my next question, so thank you for answering that because you, like every other attraction and uh, business in Vancouver that is dependent on public support and confidence, have taken a hammering and down 85%, and that's probably pretty mm. consistent with other major Vancouver attractions. Nancy, how, how have you been able to keep your head above water? Well, it's certainly not easy. Um, we started uh, up in June, and things were extremely slow, mm -hmm. uh, at least until the middle of July. I think people were so fearful they weren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but August uh, picked up uh, a little bit, and also we started seeing some people from other provinces, so that helped. Um, but unfortunately, uh, they all have gone home now since uh, school's back in. Sure. And um, really, tourism relies on um, tourists, basically, from other countries. And uh, Vancouver being such a popular destination, we saw people from all over the world uh, year-round. So tourism businesses are really missing that. And uh, without that volume of people, the businesses are really hamstrung. There's Absolutely. No uh, way to, re to get any revenue going. Sure. Are you able to or have you been able to or might you be able to participate in some of the benefit programs from either the federal or provincial governments with respect to, again, just staying afloat, Nancy? Well, we did have the wage subsidy in the summertime, which certainly helped us. It allowed us just to break even. Uh, but now, of course, with no business, mm -hmm. uh, we really just can't stay open. So the, sub the subsidy is not uh, really helpful to us now. Um, but uh, we hope that they'll continue it uh, through at least to get us to when the borders reopen. Um, because, as I said, uh, without uh, the borders being reopened, reopened, we really don't have uh, enough volume to support 
um, our staff. Absolutely. Nancy, the Capilano Suspension Bridge is such a well-known Vancouver tourism attraction, and you did, you've did you just said that you count very heavily on international visitors to make, it, uh, make a go of it year after year. If this were a typical year, where would most of your advertising dollars be directed? At the United States, in Asia, in Europe, or a combination of all? Well, really, um, we focus most of our advertising right in Vancouver uh, because the city itself draws a huge visitation. Sure. So we start um, making people aware once they're in the city. Um, and, of course, uh, we do. We have a large sales team that mm-hmm. goes around the world with uh, tourism, with our destination uh, people from Tourism BC and Tourism Canada to promote Vancouver. So once we get them to Vancouver, uh, uh, that's when we start really uh, honing in and uh, letting them know where we are and what we have to offer. That's right, counting us on us locals to steer our guests in your general direction. As we continue to do, it's a wonderful place to take out a towners to. I love doing it, love to show off my city. And uh, the Capilano Suspension Bridge is a huge hit with some, some people have some nerve issues going across it, but it's great fun. And we're all looking forward to Canyon Lights again. Boy, we're sure going to need it this year, Nancy. I hope you do a a heck of a job as you always do come December. Well, we will. We always make it bigger and better every year. Well, we're counting on Mm -hmm. you. Thanks very much for this this morning. We appreciate your joining us and uh, we wish you success. All right. Well, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on your on your program today. You're welcome. Nancy Sibbert is the CEO of the Capilano Group up there at the Capilano Suspension Bridge. Dr. Lauren Edelman is back on the show from Canada West Veterinary Specialist. She's, in fact, on duty this, this morning uh, at the hospital. Lauren, welcome back. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Yes, I, I am on duty from my desk today. <laughs> well, it's good to have you with us. And by the way, when I went to the website, uh, things haven't changed because when you pull up your website, the first thing you get is a message that you you have to read before going anywhere. And it's yeah. about it's about the new way you're doing business, not the new this week, but because of COVID, you've changed your practices. And for example, if people are bringing a creature, a pet to your clinic for uh, any reason, uh, you A, need to make the appointment in advance and even when you get to the clinic you're supposed to stay in your car and call even if you're right outdoors in the parking lot right exactly yeah so like many other hospitals and clinics uh, in Vancouver and elsewhere in Canada and the U.S. um, we are still only allowing furry companions in the hospital Mm -hmm. so owners are currently still uh, mainly waiting in the parking lot or, you know, dropping off their pets after talking to the veterinarian and then going home so that we can continue the workup, you know, while the owners remain comfy at their homes uh, and we have their pets in the hospital. All right. So let's, uh, and that that has uh, been a practice now for many months uh, and nothing's changed and not likely to until the situation changes for us all. Right, Lauren? Exactly. Like, it's really hard. Definitely. It can be hard on us as veterinarians, too. And we appreciate the sacrifice that owners are making, not being able to come into the hospital with their pets. But ultimately, I think, you know, people are pretty understanding about the fact that if we do have, you know, with all the, the all the ins and outs in our hospital, we have a high exposure risk. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, of course, if there was a, a case that came up positive, a person in the hospital and exposure, that would potentially mean shutting down the entire hospital. And that would mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of animals not getting the care that they might exactly. benefit from. So a little caution goes an awfully long way. By the way, friends, the lines are wide open this morning. If you have a question for the vet, it's Dr. Lauren back with us today. And it's 604-280-9898. Again, 604-280-9898. Questions. I bet you got a lot of calls over the last week or so, Lauren, when we were covered in this dense, awful, gunky smoke about what do I do? Should I even take my dog for a walk? And if, if you did get those calls, and I bet you did, what did you tell them? Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, to talk about because who knows we might get smoked back. Right? No question, so, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's hard. You know, even for me, I felt the effects of the smoke going outside. And we know that cats and dogs, particularly, and other you know smaller animals, are are even more sensitive to the effects of secondhand smoke and just you know environmental smoke. So it was really limit time outside outside with animals, and you know definitely don't do any high intensity activities with your pets outside, like hiking or excessive playing, because that can definitely have an impact on them. Specifically, just like in people, those with other issues like heart disease, lung disease, Mm -hmm. diabetes. Those are all the same categories that in people that are at increased risk are also true for animals. Well, I noticed, because uh, I take the dog for a walk, uh, we, we, we share duties. My wife has, goes in the morning yeah. and I go in the evenings. And so uh, when I was walking, uh, I, there are a couple of days, frankly, I didn't go out and the um, and because I go out most days. But when I did go out, I was wearing a mask and noticed immediately my dog wasn't. And they don't make masks for dogs. So they just take they just get what they get, don't they? They do, yeah, and it's definitely, I think I was reading it, like, during the height of this, the equivalent um, to, for people, was, like, smoking eight pa- eight cigarettes a day or yes, something like that. I that saw that, equivalent. too. So, <laughs> so for dogs, I can't even imagine, and, you know, there's a lot of respiratory illness in dogs and cats. Lots of cats are asthmatic, and so um, we definitely had some patients presenting for acute decompensation of otherwise well-controlled condition, even as indoor-only pets. Yeah. I want to talk about cats this time around, Lauren, because last time you and I got together, the question was, can COVID-19 be transmitted, interspecies transmission? Mostly at that that conversation was about dogs and humans. Since then, and it's been a while, uh, since then, we've seen some literature indicating that cats can catch COVID and uh, we don't know about their ability to transmit it to humans. What can you tell us this morning? Yeah, so I think the general, you know, there is a study that came out, which, um, you know, came out in based out of a Chinese um, uh, study in Wuhan following the COVID-19 outbreak, where they actually essentially surveyed 102 cats in Wuhan, and 11 of those cats had what we call neutralizing antibodies, which are basically antibodies that bind tightly enough to a virus that prevent infection. And only three of those cats were actually owned by people who were diagnosed with COVID-19. So basically what that study showed us is that I think the exposure um, to cats, particularly in this area, was higher than we initially thought. Okay. Now, in saying that, none of the cats in the study actually had reported evidence of illness. So okay. based on what we know thus far, I think the the general consensus is that both dogs and cats can get COVID-19 from their human human counterparts. The chance of clinical illness is very, very low, and there's still no evidence that the animals can then spread it back to humans. 
Okay, well, that's reassuring. And now we had the dog part of the conversation a month or so ago, so now we've had it all around for house pets. And, of course, cats, uh, in many cases, certainly not all, Lauren, but in many cases, cats are housebound to begin with. They don't get out much, quite deliberately, and that's a good thing in this case, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know, and obviously you have to take into account this study came out of China where maybe the stray populations are, you know, higher. Uh, but I think the, yeah, the general consensus is that animals can be affected. So you should take those those measures if you have been exposed or if you're quarantining, you know, don't kiss your dogs on the lips. Right. Uh, try not to share food. Um, if you can have someone else look after them, that would be ideal, especially if you actually do have COVID-19. But I think the chance of them getting clinical illness is quite quite low compared to people they're they're less sensitive to clinical signs all right great stuff good to know uh let's take a call we need to take a break julie but let's let's talk to wanda first and then we'll and we'll take our break wanda thanks for waiting good morning good morning your question for dr lauren please yes good. i have a six-year-old poodle cross probably with a terrier who seems to have an anxiety disorder she <laughs> We can't let her out when the snow is falling because she, you know, won't come in and she's trying to catch the snowflakes all the time. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that she's doing now that's really kind of um, unsettling is she licks our wall while we're eating our dinner and we, can't, we have to try and distract her or put her outside for that. I mean, she's on gabapentin and paroxetine and tramadol for a... Uh, injury that she incurred for a luxating patella, but I don't know if there's anything else that we can do. So does, is the medication, Dr. Edelman, partially responsible for wall licking during supper? Could you? Could that be it? Well, wall licking is interesting. It, Definitely, it, it could is. just be. It could just be about you know a, a behavior for yeah, sure, anxiety, of kind of a release and outlet. But there are also medical reasons why a dog might lick a wall. So um, dogs can lick walls if they're anemic, so they have low red blood cell count. So one thing I would definitely make sure is that, you know, your dog's had blood work done to make sure there isn't any sort of medical issue to explain those clinical signs. But, you know, if it is a behavioral problem, I, you know, I, I empathize with you. It can be very frustrating. You know, anxiety in dogs can be very hard uh, to deal with. And mm-hmm. medications are generally only, you know, half the, half the, the battle generally there's a lot of, you know, behavioral modifications that needs to be done. And if you're having struggle, then there are definitely some veterinary behaviorists out there that can help you. And when I refer to veterinary behaviorists, I'm talking about, you know, veterinarians who have then gone on to do residencies in behavior. Um, those are those are the people that are going to be your best resources. There you go, Wanda. Is that helpful at all? Yes, it is. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. If you'd like to jump in next, it's 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Our guest back with us today is Dr. Lauren Edelman from the uh, Canada West Veterinary Specialist right here in town. It's uh, mid-September, the 20th to be precise. It is also, oh, deep in the heart of spider season. And for a lot of British Columbians, it's the creepiest time of the year. A pleasure to welcome our next guest of the show, Claudia Copley, has been a collection manager at the Royal BC Museum for over 15 years. She is responsible for maintaining the entomology collection. This includes insects, arachnids, and myriapods, a collection with more than half a million specimens. Claudia Copley, good morning and welcome. 
Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Apparently, there are approximately a thousand species of spiders in British Columbia, and you are busily engaged in trying to identify as many of them as possible in order to put out uh, what is going to become a handbook to the spiders of BC. How's that going for you, Claudia? Well, we're at, um, we found about 900 different species, just shy of 900 different species so far. We expect that we might reach 1,000. Wow. Uh, where mm-hmm. Are they all over in equal distribution, or are there concentrations that are uh, more densely populated by spiders in B.C. than others? <laughs> well, um, if, as you go north, you might uh, find that there would be fewer species, of course, because it's colder. Sure. But... Um, so we we tend to live, like I live in Victoria, and we tend to live in one of the most biologically diverse areas of Canada anyway. And the South Okanagan is also a really rich, biologically diverse area. And so both those areas all also have a lot of spiders. The South Okanagan and Southern Vancouver Island. How about uh, Metro Vancouver? We're kind of in between the two in terms of volume? <laughs> well, in terms of ecosystem, you've got a little bit of a mix there. and uh, But in terms of what's left... Metro Vancouver, not so much habitat. So really the spiders people encounter in urban centers are introduced species, and they're primarily from Europe. You know, I think the most important question I could ask you this morning on behalf of virtually everyone listening, spider fans or not, most not, is are any of the spider species to be found in British Columbia, Claudia, dangerous? Yeah, so uh, we do have one species that everyone is familiar with, and that's called the black widow spider. Okay. And it does occur on um, southern Vancouver Island and in the lower mainland on the beaches, in the really dry places, and then again in the Okanagan and the Thompson area, as far north as Williams Lake. And um, and it's a very secretive spider. It's not, and there's no such thing as an aggressive spider because there's nothing that they want from us. So all the spiders are actually shy and scared of us, but black widow spiders are particularly secretive, and um, they're, they're, the likelihood of being bitten by one is very low, but if it were to happen, then you would definitely seek medical attention because they have a neurotoxin, and it's very painful, and if it were um, near or affected your diaphragm, you might have difficulty breathing. Mm. So there are some issues associated with it. But remember, the spider is very small and we are very big. It doesn't want to bite us because there's no reason to. Mm. It's a waste of um, very precious venom for them, which they use to to get prey. And um, we're, you know, unless you're very old or very young or immunocompromised, you, you will, of course, recover okay so what's the most common uh, type of spider is uh, uh, that we would find in this part of the of the world well i think the one that people see the most frequently especially this time of year which is in part why we call it spider season yeah is um the garden cross spider and it makes an orb web and it sits pretty much in the middle of it and it it's a big spider it's a european introduction and um it's very visible this time of year. There are many more of them in the spring when all the little baby spiderlings are around, but nobody sees them. But right now, the females uh, are sitting in the middle of a really large bicycle spoke web, and they have a, a bit of a cross marking on the top few of them, and they're starting to produce an egg mass inside, so their abdomen is getting really swollen, so and they look big. So the ones that park themselves in the middle of the web are typically females, then? 
Well, um, the big ones yeah. are typically female. So okay. in spiders, females are, I, I can't necessarily think of an exception, actually. Females are bigger. Oh, okay. Uh, and spider webs, uh, notorious for driving people absolutely crazy because they'll, they'll, they'll build a web between two, uh, any two things they can find that will hold either end. And they're incredibly creative. Uh, and yet uh, there's nothing quite as awful. Now, this is from a, a layman's point of view. You're the spider woman, so it's a whole different scene for you. But I get grossed out when I walk around and all of a sudden, whap, right in the face, a big old whack of spider web. It's really awful stuff. It's not dangerous or harmful it's just yucky isn't it yeah it's terrible for the spider too i'm not sure it is rebuild that web after you've destroyed it and and they do rebuild them pretty frequently because they do get damaged you know a bird or a person walks through or flies through sure but um but uh it's expensive to build a web like that too that's a lot of protein involved in that so she would eat the web that she uh was she would reuse it, basically reprocess it through her system. Interesting. Because, because of the expense of producing all that protein to make the web. So, yeah, the worst is when you walk through a spider web and she's in the middle and then she's on your face. Yeah, yeah, that, that's just way that too much fun. Hold me down. So, Claudia, I only got a minute here. Dangerous. I know, I know, but it's freaky as I'll get out. <laughs> so, what, a, a word to the wise, if you would. Some advice for those of us who aren't the biggest fans of spiders, unlike yourself, but who are trying desperately to coexist peacefully. Well, there's a famous quote that if you kill the predators of pests, you inherit their work. So spiders are beneficial. They eat other insects and all kinds of things we don't like, earwigs and mosquitoes. Anything you don't like, a spider will eat it. They also eat a lot of other spiders, if that makes you feel any better. Oh. And, and so if we allow spiders to exist in our landscape, then we're deriving the benefit of what they do in terms of predation. So that's great, right? They're helping us. And uh, and then the other thing, if people can just remember, that in British Columbia, we're not threatened by anything uh, dangerous. The one spider that has a venom that is harmful to us is in secret spots, not in homes. Right, sure. And it's Walmart. Generally, it's very, very shiny black with an hourglass of red. And the rest of them are harmless. Yes. Thanks, Claudia. Great to speak to you. We'll do this again. Uh, enjoy the rest of spider season, because I know you will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Claudia Copley at the Royal BC Museum. That's got it for us for this weekend. Mike is standing by with the App Show. Thanks to Julie Wong and Andrew Ferreira. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you next weekend right here on NW.